Hey. Not hey. Mark Charles in his yeah. Sin bekeed in an initially, do to Higlin Bashes Chin. Sin bekeed in an Bashache, do to Chitney Bashanella. In the Navajo culture among our people, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. We're a matrilineal people, and our identities come from our mother's mother. So my mother's mother happens to be American of Dutch heritage, and so I say, Sin bekeed in an initially. Translated, that means I'm from the wooden shoe people. My second clan, my mother's father is, um, or my, my father's mother is Toa Higlini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father is also Tsinbeke Dina. And then my fourth clan, my father's father is Toa Chitni, and that's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. Before we go any further, I want to just acknowledge that we are on the land of the Lenape. These, this was the native nation that hunted here, they fished here, they farmed here, they raised their families here, they buried their ancestors here. Their society was here. These were the people who were ethnically cleansed and removed from these lands so that the city of New York could be built up. And uh, wherever I go, wherever I speak, I always like to acknowledge the people whose land I'm standing on. And I want to just ask, is there anybody here from the Lenape Nation? Okay, I like to ask wherever I go to because I don't want to presume to speak first, and so I, I want to uh, acknowledge the people whose land I'm on. Uh, it helps me to conduct myself with greater humility wherever I go, and it also is good to remember that this land was not discovered by Europeans. Um, so in the next half hour, I'm gonna say some things that are gonna shock you. I'm gonna say some things that are gonna offend you. I'm gonna say some things that you've never heard before. At some point, you're gonna to wanna to walk out. At other points, you're gonna to wanna to throw something at me. Resist those urges. <laughs> but stay seated, and we have to get through this because if we really wanna talk about the future of our democracy, if we really wanna talk about where we're going as a nation and what we need to do to get there, there's a lot of things we have to understand that we just don't know what to talk about. Now, one of the things I'm gonna be discussing is called the doctrine of discovery, and I just want to acknowledge that there are many scholars and academics and, and elders who have gone before me, even within our native communities, who have tried to bring this conversation to the forefront. One of the leading scholars on this issue, his name is uh, Steve Newcomb. He's written a book called Pagans in the Promised Land. Uh, he is actually um, from, the, from the Lenape Nation, as well as Shawnee, and so if you ever have a chance to pick up his book, I highly recommend it. It's a very good book to help you understand how this doctrine of discovery has really taken a root within the, the social imagination and even the legal framework of this nation. Now, before we go any further, I also wanna say we have to define a few terms just because there's a, language is important, and we have to make sure we're using the right terms. So one of the terms we use a lot is white privilege. I don't like this term. White privilege makes it sound like it's a blessing that needs to be shared. <laughs> it's not. It's a racial injustice that needs to be confronted. So I will be using the term white supremacy. And I won't even use that all the time. I often will use the term the lie of white supremacy because white people are not superior. They just think they are. <laughs> the second term is the original sin of this nation. Many people have written books and believe that this sin is slavery. That's not accurate. Other people think it's the genocide of native peoples. That's also not accurate. 
the original sin of this nation, if you could say this nation had an original sin, is the heresy of Christian empire. See, in the Old Testament, when the people of Israel, they had a land covenant with the God of Israel, and their land covenant, covenant made their prosperity a barometer of their relationship with God. They knew they were doing well with God when they prospered on their land. They knew they were out of the sorts with God when they were exiled from their land. Their land and their prosperity on their land was a barometer of their relationship with God. Now Jesus came not as a political Messiah, but as a sacrifice, not to reestablish the greatness of the kingdom of David, but to make disciples, offer his body as a living sacrifice, and to plant a church. And so he gave his disciples a different barometer. When they figured out he was the Messiah, he taught them the Son of Man must suffer and die and be persecuted. In the Beatitudes, he said, not only will I suffer and die, but my followers will also be persecuted. And in the Beatitudes, he said, in fact, when you are persecuted on account of my name, rejoice. Because this is what happened to the prophets of old. So Jesus gave his disciples a new barometer of how they knew they were doing well in their discipleship, and it was not prosperity, it was persecution. Now, he was not saying you are doing well in your, in your discipleship when your husband beats you, or when a bunch of white supremacists enslave you. He said, when you are persecuted on account of my name, because you are following me, because you are teaching, because you are following my example, then you should rejoice. And the disciples didn't like that barometer, and they rejected it. They finally got it after Pentecost, and most of them died a martyr's death. And so for the first three centuries of the church, you knew when you joined this church through your baptism, your confessions, your discipleship, and your community, that you were joining a group that was standing in opposition to empire, and because of your membership in this group, you might be persecuted and maybe even killed. Now, in the fourth century, the great persecution happens, and Eusebius who is the bishop of Caesarea, is writing down, very boldly, I might add, an ecclesiastical history where he's documenting the life and faith of the martyrs, many of them who he records died for the joy set before them because they were sharing in the suffering of Christ. But in 303 AD, the great persecution touches him, and he records that most of these martyrs he knew personally, and they were taking place in Caesarea and in Palestine, which is where he was from. And when you look at this volume of 11 books called Ecclesiastical History, in book 8, which is right around the great persecution, Eusebius begins propping up Constantine as a God-ordained ruler of Rome for such a time as this. He compares him to Moses. And then he records in the Book of the Martyrs 13 chapters of vivid, gory details of the martyrs in the Great Persecution dying, many of whom he knew personally. Now, if you're writing a book called Ecclesiastical History, and you're tired of this new barometer of persecution because it's touched you personally, and it's taken your own friend's life and caused you to live in fear, and so you side up next to the most likely emperor who might be able to end this persecution, and you prop him up as a God-ordained ruler at such a time as this because you want to plant this heresy of Christian empire in his mind because Jesus was absolutely opposed to Christian empire, and he said, my kingdom's not of this earth. It's from somewhere else. Your first order of business 
is to write Christ out of ecclesiastical history. Because the two can't coexist. The heresy of Christian empire and the suffering son of man cannot coexist in the same narrative. So you have to write Christ out of ecclesiastical history. And so if you read the last chapter, the last book of ecclesiastical history and the last chapter, which is titled The Victory of Constantine and the Blessings of Him Accrued to the Whole Roman World, you will find that he does just that when he says at the same time they celebrated and extolled, first of all, God, the universal king, for thus they were taught. But then they celebrated the praises not of Christ, but of the pious emperor. He then goes on to says, the supreme God granted from heaven above the fruits of his piety, the trophies of victory over the wicked, and that Narvaz's tyrant and all his counselors and inherits, he cast prostrate not at the feet of Christ, but at the feet of Constantine. You wonder why the American church does not know how to deal with systemic corporate sin? Because it has no theological space to do so because it has written Christ out of ecclesiastical history and embraced Constantine. So the original sin of this nation is not slavery. It is not genocide. It is the belief that we accepted the heresy that we've embraced, that we are members of a Christian empire, and the Christian empire justifies the sin of slavery and justifies the sin of genocide. The third term we have to clarify is racial reconciliation. This sounds beautiful. It's inaccurate. Race is not genetic difference. I don't care what Ancestry.com tells you. <laughs> There's no genetic definition of race. It's a human construct. And in America, we constructed race for the express purpose of oppressing and dividing. Reconciliation implies there was a previous harmony. This word's a misnomer. It sounds beautiful. It's a misnomer. We don't need racial reconciliation. We need racial conciliation. Conciliation is merely the mediation of a dispute. Reconciliation perpetuates the myth of America. We used to be great, now we're not. Conciliation demands we start this conversation in an accurate starting point. This thing began in a mess. We're just trying to make it better. Now, at the end of his second term in office, President Obama was talking about the need in our nation at his final State of the Union that we needed a new politics. And in his speech, he said, we the people. Our Constitution begins with these three simple words. Words we've come to recognize mean all the people. Now, this sounds beautiful, and he got some applause for it, but as I'm sitting there listening to him, I said, when? When did we make this decision? The founding fathers didn't believe it. Abraham Lincoln didn't believe it. As good as the civil rights movement was, it didn't get us there. President Trump doesn't believe it. When did we decide collectively as a nation that we the people means all the people? Let me help you understand. Invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever. Reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, convert them to his and to their use and profit. These are the words of Pope Nicholas V in a papal bull written in 1452 called Dum Diversus. 
This papal bull, along with others written between 1452 and 1493, collectively become known as what we call the Doctrine of Discovery. The Doctrine of Discovery is essentially the heretical Christian empire in Europe that doesn't know Christ, telling the nations of Europe, wherever you go, whatever land you find not ruled by white European Christian rulers, those people are subhuman and their land is yours to take. This is literally the doctrine that let European nations go into Africa, colonize the continent, and enslave the people. They didn't believe them to be human. It's the same doctrine that let Columbus, who was lost at sea, land in this new world already inhabited by millions and claim to have discovered it. Think about it, you cannot discover land already inhabited. If you don't believe me, leave your cell phones, leave your cell phones, your car keys, your laptops out. I will come by and discover them for you. This isn't discovery, right? This is stealing, this is conquering, this is colonialism. The fact that we honor Columbus with monuments and history books and holidays as the discoverer of America reveals the implicit racial bias of the nation, which is that native peoples, people of color, are not fully human. So this makes, and especially if you understand the root of the problem, which is this belief in Christian empire, that the doctrine of discovery is a white male Christian supremacist doctrine that is the direct fruit of a church that has prostituted itself out to the empire. Now, in 1763, King George draws a line down the Appalachian Mountains and he says to the 13 colonies that are here that they no longer have the right of discovery of the empty Indian lands west of Appalachia. This upsets the colonies, they want access to those lands. So a few years later, they write a letter of protest. In their letter, they accuse the king of raising the conditions of new appropriations of land. They go on to state that he has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages. They signed their letter on July 4th, 1776. Literally 30 lines below the statement, all men are created equal, the Declaration of Independence refers to natives as merciless Indian savages, making it very clear the only reason the Founding Fathers used this inclusive term, all men, because they had a very narrow definition of who was actually human. So this makes our Declaration of Independence not a blank check, but a white supremacist document. Now, a few years later, our Founding Fathers wrote another document. This one started with the words, we the people of the United States. This, of course, is the preamble to the Constitution. But if you keep reading this, just a few lines later, down to Article 1, Section 2. Article 1, Section 2 is the part of the Constitution that determines who is and who is not a citizen of this union, who is and who is not protected by this document. If you read Article 1, Section 2, the first thing you have to know is it never mentions women. Now this is important because if you read the entire document preambled through the 27th Amendment, you will find there are 51 gender-specific male pronouns. He, him, and his. Who can run for office, who can hold office, even who's protected by this document. 51 gender-specific male pronouns, not a single female pronoun in the entire document. So we have to know Article 1, Section 2 never mentions women. Second, it specifically excludes natives. And third, it counts Africans as three-fifths of a person. So who's left? white land-owning men. See, we don't pause to think about this. The purpose of our Constitution is to protect the interests of white land-owning men. 
So today, we act surprised that women earn 70 cents to the dollar. This shouldn't surprise us. Constitution's working. We act surprised that our prisons are filled with people of color. This shouldn't surprise us. Constitution's working. We act outraged that in 2010, the Supreme Court sided with Citizens United and rules that corporations now have the same rights to political free speech as individuals. This opens the door for super PACs, unlimited contributions to candidates. This shouldn't surprise us. The Constitution's doing exactly what it was designed to do. It's protecting the interests of white landowning men. President Trump said he won the greatest victory in electoral college history when he beat Hillary Clinton. That's not true. This is why we have an electoral college. To guarantee that the white landowning man can defeat the colored man or the woman or anyone else who isn't in the white landowning Christian male category. This is why we have an electoral college. We're talking about gerrymandering. The purpose of the Constitution is to gerrymander. That's why we have it. We have to understand how deep this is. And we try to think, well, we've corrected those things. And many people will point to the 13th Amendment. They think the 13th Amendment abolishes slavery. They think it says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist within the United States. But it doesn't. It says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime shall exist. So have we ever abolished slavery? No. no. Where is it legal? Prison. So let's look at our incarceration rate. Well, it should surprise nobody that we incarcerate our citizens at the highest rate of any country in the world. For every 100,000 citizens, we incarcerate 693. It's 110 higher than the next nation, which is Kyrgyzstan, and about three to five times higher than most every other nation. This is just comparing us to NATO nations. And when we break it out by race, it's even worse. Hispanics at a rate of 831, American Indians at a rate of 895, and black Americans at a rate of 2,306. White Americans, of course, are incarcerated at a much more palatable rate of 450. So we just have to be clear, we've never abolished slavery. And to this day, we use it as a legal way to remove the civil rights of our people of color. There is a lot of dialogue going on right now about reparations. And we have to talk about this as a nation. But I would encourage us, before we pay reparations, let's abolish slavery first. Because I guarantee you, if the white landowning male pays a penny in reparations for the slavery, they will want the slate wiped clean, and we will never abolish it. So we just have to understand the Constitution of the United States is a systemically white supremacist and sexist document that assumes the white landowning male has the authority to decide who is and who is not human. Now, a few years later, we had a Supreme Court case. This is Johnson versus McIntosh. It's two men of European descent. They're in litigation over a single piece of land. One of them acquired the land from a native tribe. The other one acquired the same land from the government. They want to know who owned it. The case goes all the way to the Supreme Court. The court has to decide the principle upon which land titles are based. So they ruled that the principle was that discovery gave title to the land 
by whose subjects and by whose authority was made against all other European countries, governments. And that title was consummated by possession. They then go on to reference the doctrine of discovery as a legal instrument and use this to determine that natives who are here first but are not fully human, we only have what's called the right of occupancy to land, like a fish would occupy water, a bird would occupy air. And Europeans have the fee title to the land, the right of discovery to the land, and therefore they're the true title holders. This case, along with a few others in the 1820s and 30s, create the legal precedent for land titles. Now this precedent and the doctrine of discovery are referenced by the court in 1954, 1985, and most recently in 2005. I want to talk about this 2005 case. In the 1770s, the Oneida Indian Nation occupied about 6 million acres of land in central state New York. The Washington administration reduced their land down to 300,000 acres through a treaty, and then they passed a law stating that from here on out, only the federal government could buy lands from native tribes. The state of New York continued to illegally purchase lands from the United Indian Nation until all the lands were purchased, the natives were moved out, and white settlers had moved in. In 1997 and 98, the Oneida Indian Nation came back into New York and they purchased on the open market, they paid full price for some of their traditional lands, and they wanted to exercise some of their traditional sovereignty over them, meaning they were not going to pay taxes. Now, the lands they bought were within the city limits of the city of Sherrill, and they wanted their tax revenue, so they sued the Oneida Indian Nation in federal district court. The court ruled in favor of the Oneida, and so they appealed to the Federal Court of Appeals, and the decision was upheld. So they appealed a second time to the Supreme Court, and the case was heard in 2004. Now, in the ruling in 2005, in the first footnote of the case, the Supreme Court references, while they're setting up precedent, the doctrine of discovery and who actually has the fee title to the land. They then place the burden on the Oneida Indian Nation and state that given the long-standing, distinctly non-Indian character of the area and its inhabitants, the regulatory authority constantly exercised by the New York State and its counties and towns, and the Oneida's long delay in seeking judicial relief against parties other than the U.S., we hold the tribe cannot unilaterally revive its ancient sovereignty. They go on to reference another case that says it is impossible to rescind the session and restore to the Indians to their former rights because their lands have been open to settlement, which is white settlement, and large portions of them are now in the possession of innumerable innocent purchasers. Now, in his original ruling in, in 1823, John Marshall, who was the Supreme Court justice who wrote this, he actually built an argument that we were savages and therefore did not have access to our lands. He said, but the tribes of Indians inhabiting this country were fierce savages whose occupation was war and whose subsistence was drawn chiefly from the forest. To leave them in possession of their country was to leave the country a wilderness. In 2005, the court makes almost the exact same case when it says, moreover, the properties here involved have greatly increased in value since the United sold them 200 years ago. Notably, it was not until lately that the United sought to regain ancient sovereignty over land converted from wilderness to become parts of city like Sherrill. 
They then go on to conclude that we now reject the unification theory of the United Indian Nation and the U.S. and hold that standards of federal Indian law, which is based on the doctrine of discovery footnote one, and federal equity practice preclude the tribe from rekindling embers of sovereignty that long ago grew cold. This is possibly the most white supremacist judicial ruling in my lifetime, and it was written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. When your land titles are propped up by a dehumanizing doctrine of discovery, white supremacy is a bipartisan value. So how did we get there? Well, in 1630, the Protestant church initially pushed back against the doctrine of discovery. They didn't buy into it. But in 1630, John Marshall was on, or John Winthrop was on board a ship in the Boston Harbor, and he preached a sermon called A Model of Christian Charity. In his sermon, he referred to the colonists he was with as a city on a hill. He's borrowing from the language of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, telling his disciples to be a lamp on a stand, a city on a hill, shining your good deeds into this dark world. He goes on to exhort them in all meekness, gentleness, patience, and liberality. They should rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together. They should keep the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. End of his sermon, he's exhorting them to obey his teachings. And he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now, Deuteronomy 30 is the passage in the Old Testament where the people of Israel are standing at the banks of the Jordan River, ready to cross over and take possession of their promised lands. And God's reiterating the threats and promises of his land covenant, the Old Testament barometer. If you obey me, I'll do these things for you. If you disobey me, I'll do these things to you. End of this passage, it says, but if our hearts shall turn away so that we will not obey and we worship other gods, we will surely perish out of this good land whether we cross over this river to possess it. Now, Deuteronomy 30 says river, but in his sermon, John Winthrop changes that to art. He changes river to vast sea. Now, why would he do that? Well, they didn't cross the river, they crossed an ocean. So what's he implying? Based on the Old Testament understanding of promised lands, they are standing on the shores of their promised land, ready to go and take possession of them. Now, who here has read the book of Joshua and Deuteronomy? How do you claim your promised lands? Do not leave anything alive that breathes. Completely destroy them. Promised lands for one people is literally God-ordained genocide for another. I call this sermon the birth of American exceptionalism. This idea percolates for about 100 years. Mid-1700s, we go past the Appalachian Mountains, past the Mississippi River, we start expanding westward. End of the 1700s, we have the Second Great Awakening. There's a growth in churches, a renewal of denominations. There's this religious fervor as we're going further and further west. Mid-1800s, the term manifest destiny is coined this belief that the United States has the God-given right to rule these lands from sea to shining sea. Now you've been taught manifest destinies, this beautiful expansion across this continent. In 1840, this is what our nation looked like. The dark states to the east are the actual states, the other lands are uncharted lands or territories to the west. 
If you go onto the U.S. Army's military website, you can look up medals of honor by war and by conflict. If you look up medals of honor for the U.S. during the Indian War campaigns, you will find that we awarded 425 medals of honor to U.S. soldiers who participated in the Indian War campaigns. End of the century. This is what the nation looked like. During that century, our majority population exploded from 5.3 million to 76.2 million, and our native population shrunk from 600,000 to 237,000. If you're doing the math, that's a 61.47% rate of genocide. If you're comparing, that's almost twice what Hitler had. And who is at the heart of all this? Well, in 1862, Abraham Lincoln signed the Pacific Railway Act. Which allotted land and resources to complete the Transcontinental Railway. The Transcontinental Railway had made it up to Omaha, Nebraska, and this provided the money and the resources to get it all the way to the Pacific Ocean. There were three primary routes: the one that went through Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, and California. There was a northern route that went from Duluth, Minnesota, through Idaho, North Dakota, out to Seattle, and there was a southern route that went through New Mexico, Arizona, and out near Los Angeles. Within two and a half years of signing this bill, Abraham Lincoln, after the hanging of the Dakota 38, after the massacre at Sand Creek, and after removing the Navajo people to the death camp at Bosque Redondo during the Long Walk, Abraham Lincoln has ethnically cleansed all of the tribes from Minnesota, Colorado, Wyoming, and New Mexico. It was so horrific during that period that the first governor of the state of New York. Our state of California, I'm sorry, said this in his first state of the state address. He said that a war of extermination will continue to be waged until the races between the races until the Indian race becomes extinct must be expected. While we cannot anticipate this result, but with painful regret, the inevitable destiny of the race is beyond the power or wisdom of man to avert. Now we have to read this carefully. He's not saying these people are going to die because of famine, which we can't control, or because of disease, which is running rampant. He's saying we can't stop killing them. His government was waging this war of extinction. His nation was doing this, and they couldn't stop because they had to complete their manifest destiny. They had to claim their promised lands. Now you're thinking this is old history. Think back three years ago. Benjamin Netanyahu was in the U.S. He was lobbying against the Iran nuclear deal. He was talking to a very divided, very partisan Congress. They weren't even talking to each other, just like today. He had to get everyone on the same page behind him. So early in his speech, he alluded to one of the most unifying themes in American politics, which is American exceptionalism. And he said, "Because America and Israel, we share a common destiny—the destiny of promised lands." See, the United States of America and Israel have a very dysfunctional, codependent relationship.、It、has nothing to do with freedom, justice, or equality. You wonder why Congresswoman Omar got such a resounding bipartisan rebuke a few weeks ago. We need the modern nation-states of Israel's Old Testament legacy of promised lands to justify what we did to African Americans and Native Americans. And they need our continued flourishing as a land with a manifest destiny to justify what they're doing to Bedouins and Palestinians. 
we have a very dysfunctional codependent relationship has nothing to do with justice, freedom, or equality. It's all about justifying oppression, and in our case, even genocide. Now you're thinking, well, that was the Republican Congress that did that. Well, one of my calls for the nation is into the process of lament, especially the church when we did all this history. But if you're really going to lament and sit in your brokenness, you're going to need some kind of hope. And I've learned that when I call the church into the space of lament for our systemic, multi-generational corporate sin of slavery and genocide and ethnic cleansing and racism and sexism, that the hope most of the nation finds, most of the Christians and probably many of your churches have found, has come from 2 Chronicles 7.14, which says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, I will hear from heaven, I will, I will forgive their sins, and I will what? Heal their land. You are not God's chosen people. And Turtle Island isn't your promised land. You have no authority to pray this prayer. There is nothing in the scriptures that says, if you turn from your wicked ways, if you, for, if you ask for forgiveness, that God will heal your land. If your son or daughter steals a bike and comes to you and says, Mom, Dad, I stole this bike. I feel horrible about it. Who lets them keep the bike? Now you think, well, these are just the flag-flying Christians that pray this. Let's think back a few years ago. There was a bipartisan immigration bill before the Congress. And there was a group called the Evangelical Immigration Table fighting to get this through Congress. And they came out with a bookmark of 40 verses that they said showed God's heart for the immigrant. One of their verses came from Jeremiah 7, verses 5, 6, and 7. Now, Jeremiah 7, 5, and 6 says, if you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, these are good commands. I would encourage all of you as Christians to follow them. But verse 7 says, then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. Even as American Christians, you are not God's chosen people. And this is not your promised land. Well, let's talk about today. Two years ago, we elected a president who promised to make America great again. Not to be outdone, Hillary Clinton responded and said, America's great already. In fact, she said, America's great because we're good. In one of the debates with President Trump, she said those words, and President Trump stopped and said, I agree with her. I agree with everything she just said. See, they both had a broad base of agreement. They both agreed our past, our history, our foundations are great. They disagreed if we were great in 2016. Donald said no, Hillary said yes. At the Democratic National Convention, President Obama came to the stage and said America's already pretty great. Cory Booker, an African-American senator from New Jersey, takes the main stage. He's endorsing Hillary Clinton. And he says, in his speech, he acknowledges that the Declaration calls native savages. He acknowledges that the Constitution excludes women. And he acknowledges the Three-Fifths Compromise. Most politicians at that level don't acknowledge any of those things. He acknowledges all three. But he ends his remarks to this white majority Democratic Party and tells them, but these things do not detract 
from our nation's greatness. Now, does he ever say that to a room full of people of color? No. This is how you get white landowning men to vote for you. You tell them how exceptional they are. White supremacy is a bipartisan value. And we don't know what to do with that. We would rather demonize that party or demonize that politician instead of recognizing the United States of America is not white supremacist, racist, and sexist in spite of our foundations. We are white supremacist, racist, and sexist because of our foundations. There's an aboriginal leader, a native leader from Canada, who says where common memory is lacking, where people do not share in the same past, there can be no real community. If you want to build a community, he says you have to start by creating a common memory. This quote is brilliant, and it gets to the heart of our nation's problem with race, which is we do not have a common memory. We have a majority white population that remembers a history of discovery, expansion, opportunity, and exceptionalism, and we have communities of color that have the lived experience of stolen lands, broken treaties, slavery, Jim Crow laws, segregation, mass incarceration, internment camps, families separated at our borders, boarding schools, and there's no common memory. I'm proposing the United States of America needs a national dialogue on race, gender, and class, a conversation on par with the truth and reconciliation commissions that happened in South Africa, in Rwanda, and in Canada. I would call ours truth and conciliation, because reconciliation implies there was a previous harmony, and I think we need it sooner rather than later. My goal is 2021. The future, the future of our democracy is dependent on giving up this horrid conversation on when we were last great and how soon we can be great again, and is dependent on do we want to become a place where we the people actually means all the people. And we're not going to be able to answer that question until we deal with land titles. Until we deal with land titles. If you own a house, if your church owns property, you are supporting, you are propping up a white supremacist foundation. And that's what we have to deconstruct. Thank you very much. It's been my honor to be with you today. Well, good morning. I'm grateful to be here, and uh, I had planned to say that Jackie Lewis, the Reverend Jackie Lewis, is my friend until she asked me to follow Mark Charles. <laughs> I'm deeply honored to be a part of this conference on revolutionary love. I um, was in Washington, D.C. last night speaking at an ecumenical gathering of folks getting ready to advocate. Um, ecumenical advocacy days. Got here in the middle of the night. I've had a little bit of coffee. And I have a two-year-old and a three-month-old at home. So, sleep-deprived, a little weary, I'm grateful to be here standing. I, I want to talk, they said I had 30 minutes, is that right? So you, you've never been to a Baptist church. 
<laughs> it, it, it takes a Baptist preacher 30 minutes to clear his throat. So, so I want to talk to you for a Baptist 30 minutes um, uh, about building an interfaith movement to abolish mass incarceration. I'm grateful there's so many friends here, Michael Ray Matthews and Jackie and I. Are there other senior fellows here? Tracy was here yesterday, Lisa, oh my goodness. We're all senior fellows together at Auburn Theological Seminary. These are my partners in crime. Stand up, I wanna, I wanna see all of these partners in crime, Auburn Seminary senior fellows. Thank you. It was 51 years ago this week. that Martin Luther King Jr., having made his way to Memphis, paid the ultimate price in pursuit of God's love and justice in the world. Jesus journeyed into Jerusalem knowing that that's where prophets die. He set his face, the scripture says, toward Jerusalem. Martin made his way to Memphis, although there was clearly danger in the air, and he talked about it in that last speech. But it bears mention that this movement in Memphis was a local movement for a living wage, for human dignity, it had fits and starts, and the church was slow to get on board, all of the churches. But then on February 1st, 1968, two Memphis sanitation workers, Echo Cole and Robert Walker, were literally crushed to death in the back of a sanitation truck where they sought shelter from a storm. Think about that, this, this is 1968. Four years after the civil rights law was already passed. Three years after the voting rights law was passed and yet they were there because black sanitation workers were prohibited from riding in the truck with their white counterparts. They could only ride on the back of the truck or in the compactor area. And so the black bodies of Echo Cole and Robert Walker were literally crushed by the vicious machinery of white supremacy and Jim Crow segregation four years after the passage of the civil rights law. And so Dr. King made his way to Memphis and we saw in the midst of that movement the emergence of those iconic signs. I am a man. Part of how you know you're an oppressed person or an oppressed people is you have to have a slogan or a campaign 
to declare about yourself that which ought to be obvious. I am a man. Black lives matter. And for those who respond, all lives matter. That's exactly the point. And the fact that you respond suggests that you don't get it. So Dr. King made his way to Memphis. He would be slain, as you know, on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel. His last book, published a year earlier, was entitled, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? And I ask in this conversation where indeed, specifically 50 years after the Poor People's Campaign, where are the places that poor bodies and black bodies are being crushed by the machinery of the state or the society at large, demanding the attention of people of faith and moral courage? What, would, what work in the 21st century would summon the spirit and the sacrifice of Martin Luther King Jr., that spirit that called him to Memphis in the 20th century. And while I recognize the structural complexity of racism and its inextricable link to and participation with other constituent parts of hegemonic power, including sexism, classism, and militarism, I would argue that today mass incarceration is Jim Crow's most obvious descendant. And like its ancestor, its dismantling would represent not only substantive social transformation, but immeasurable transvaluative power in a society still bent on worshiping whiteness. I'll lay out my argument below, but a critical question that I wanna raise this morning is how is it that the American churches, even the black churches, the historical conscience of the American churches have not yet found their public voice on this social issue that is most steeped in the heretical doctrine of white supremacy inasmuch as America's so-called criminal justice system is the one area of our society that is many times more rabidly racist, verifiably racist than anything imaginable during the civil rights era with tragic consequences for black families and black communities. How, how did we move from about 300,000 people in American prisons and jails in 1980 to now well over two million? The criminal justice system is worse by far than it was before Dr. King marched down a single street. Now, because I'm the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, I can say without fear of contradiction, because they tell me all the time that, that every, every black person in America over 65 marched with Dr. King. <laughs> every last one of them. There, there, there are not enough streets in America for the black people. who marched without the king. And, and why is that? It is because when we're able to look in the rearview mirror of history, 
we, we are forced to ask ourselves, what were we doing? While a human rights and civil rights nightmare was unfolding under our watch. And that's the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, is what, what will we be able to say? Those of us, I, I was born a year after Dr. King was assassinated, but what, what will I be able to say to my children and my grandchildren about how we stood up or did not stand up? How did we respond while the so-called land of the free continued to operate as the mass incarceration capital of the world? In many ways, one might well argue that America's current system of disproportionately sentencing and stigmatizing scores of black people in its so-called war on drugs is as dehumanizing and as destructive as slavery itself. In many cases, it represents a life sentence. Yet so far, the churches and the larger faith community have not managed to marshal their institutional and intellectual resources in a way that is commensurate with the magnitude of this moral and humanitarian crisis. And the question is, why not? Michelle Alexander, who has inspired me in so many ways, whose book I think is so critical for this era. In fact, I, 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 as I tell her every time I talk to her, I, I promote her book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. If you haven't read it, you ought to read it. In, in some ways, it's, it's a kind of um, manifesto for our generation. I, I told her that I, I push your book more than I push my own. But I do want you to buy my book, The Divided Mind, <laughs> the Divided Mind of the Black Church, 2495 Amazon.com. <laughs> But she argues persuasively, persuasively that the mass incarceration of tens of thousands of black men for nonviolent drug-related offenses and the lifelong consequences that result are constituent parts of the new Jim Crow. I agree. There's no clear example of America's unfinished business with the project of racial justice in a putatively post-racial era who believes that anymore than a 21st century caste system engendered by its prison industrial complex. The United States of America, this crowd knows, is unrivaled. And the sheer size and the magnitude of its prison population warehousing about a quarter of the world's prisoners. Although Americans account for only about 5% of the world's population, 5% of the world's population warehousing 25% of the world's prisoners. Prison construction continued to rise unabated across Democratic and Republican administrations, a bipartisan problem, irrespective of actual rates of crime. Crime is not the issue. When it comes to drugs, if crime were the issue, if, if drugs were simply the issue, we'd raid college dormitories. We'd raid, we'd raid corporate suites. Black people and white people use and sell drugs at remarkably similar rates. We are, we're all entitled to our own opinion, not our own facts. Black people and white people use and sell drugs at roughly the same rate. 
And yet in all of the large American cities, half of the young black men are caught up somewhere in the matrix and the control of the criminal justice system, or they're hampered in their social mobility or civic participation by the stigma of a criminal record. Most of them are charged with nonviolent drug-related offenses. They are casualties in America's so-called war on drugs. At least it was a war as long as the bodies were black and lived in the inner city. We had a war. Think about that, a war on drugs. And now that the bodies are white and suburban, and we're talking about opioids, now we have a public health emergency. The public health emergency, you have patients. As I stepped into the cab making my way here this morning, I heard the announcement in a New York taxi about the opioid crisis and about how tragically three New Yorkers die every day to opioids. There's this awareness that this is a public health crisis and that people who are sick need to be treated. I'm, I'm grateful for that insight, but it would have been helpful about 30 years ago in places like Baltimore and South Central LA. And I know this pain personally. I have a brother right now serving his 22nd year of a life sentence in federal prison. First time offense nonviolent drug-related offense. Nobody got physically hurt. Nobody died. Get this, nobody even got high. Because it was a sting operation, not, not surveillance, but the creation of a crime by the state which people were drawn into it, and the agents in the field not only determined that there's going to be a prosecution, but they determined the sentence with mandatory minimums and the amount of drugs. So, so they created the whole thing. No one is in denial about those. Those facts are not disputed. The crime was created by the state. No criminal record prior to that. And because of mandatory minimums in the 90s, the agents determined how much of what they call on the street ghost dope was present. And so they're determining, in effect, the sentence. My brother, who was 33 years old at the time, will be 55 this year. He, he's now in Florida. A little while ago, he was... He's been in many different places, but he was in federal prison in South Carolina, about an hour from my home in Savannah, Georgia. And we'd make our way to see him at this federal prison in Estelle, South Carolina, that literally sits on what used to be a plantation and still is a plantation. 
He is a part of this tragic system that is a human rights nightmare unfolding before our very eyes. But we're not just talking about the folk who are locked up in prison right now. We're talking about the fact that when we deal with our criminal justice system, we're talking about the stigma of, have, of having been identified as a convicted felon. Because there are millions more who, when they come out, are confronted with all of the legalized barriers against which Martin Luther King Jr. fought and for which he died 51 years ago. Housing discrimination, legal. Job discrimination is legal. Voting discrimination, legal. In some states, you can't even get a barber's license. Public benefits and student loans and so legally barred from the doors of entry to citizenship symbolize and the right to vote and denied access to ladders of opportunity and social upward mobility. Those who have served their time in America's prisons or who plead guilty in exchange for little or no actual prison time are often condemned to what I call eternal social damnation. They are not a part of a class, but a permanent caste system of political pariahs and economic lepers condemned in a very real sense to check a box on applications for employment and other applications reminiscent of the ancient biblical stigma unclean. The question is why are we, are we so silent? Dr. King said we will not have to repent in this generation, not, we will have to repent in this generation not merely for the hateful words and the actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. The question is, why, why, why have we been so silent? Why have we not really found our voice? It's like lynching happening in your lifetime and, and the church not saying anything. Can you imagine lynching going on and the church not saying anything? Well, actually I can imagine lynching happening. Can you ima imagine slavery happening and the church not being a part of the solution, but a part of, oh, that actually happened. And so here we are again. And the question is, why have we been so silent? It seems to me that America needs an interracial and interfaith coalition of principled people committed to the hard work of abolishing mass incarceration, the new and improved Jim Crow. But while arguing for this, I must admit that not even the black church has really found its voice and its sea legs. There's some work happening. Michael Ray and others are organizing churches and faith communities, but we still haven't really found our sea legs and our voice in a way that is commensurate with the magnitude of this problem. I would argue that the relative absence of an interfaith movement addressing itself to the glaring political contradictions of mass incarceration can be, can be attributed to a couple of things. Number one, we still suffer from a very narrow view of salvation that emphasizes privatistic piety. We're still dealing with an evangelistic hangover. 
that does not recognize the broader context in which we're asking people to live certain kinds of lives. And then number two, when you deal with this issue, you deal with the social and moral stigma attached to the issue of crime and the drug trade and those who are involved. And then third, the need for an intentional pastoral ministry that understands the difference between charity and justice. So first of all, this issue of privatistic piety. We're still dealing with the fact that in the American slaveocracy, those who called themselves Christians and insisted on, first of all, the genocide of Native, Native Americans, and then the enslavement of Africans, had a theological problem. And those who had slaves were trying to figure it out. There was this idea that if you allowed the slave to become a Christian, you might actually have to emancipate them. <laughs> Imagine that. And so they struggled with this. Even as they spoke in glare and spoke in noble terms about freedom. Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death. I wonder what he would have said if his slave had stood up and said, me too. <laughs> you know, the Me Too movement got started a long time ago. That, in a real sense, that, that is the history of our republic. People standing up and saying, wait, what, where, where do we fit in this conversation? And helping us to see the glaring omissions and the assumptions that we make. And so we're still much more committed to a Pauline understanding of the slavery of sin than we are the sin of slavery. And so there were those who were trying to reconcile the irreconcilable, slavery and Christian faith. And so George Whitfield, a prominent preacher during the Great Awakening and a fierce advocate of saving the souls of slaves while keeping their bodies in bondage, writes in a letter to his friend in 1950 that near 50 Negroes came to me to give thanks for what God had done to their souls. He says, I believe masters and mistresses will shortly see that Christianity will not make their Negroes worse slaves. And so he puts forth this truncated view of salvation. The genius of black Christianity in America is that we weren't simply converted to Christian faith but we converted the faith itself. In other words, unleaded slaves managed to receive a version of the faith that was different from the one that was given to them. Al Rabito said that the difference between the slave's religion and the slave master's religion was wide and deep. Howard Thurman said, by some amazing but vastly creative spirituality, the slave undertook the redemption of a religion that the master had profaned in his midst. I like to put it this way, they gave us scraps and we made soul food. They gave us the blues and we made music. They gave us the Bible and pointed to Ephesians, slaves obey your masters. We took the Bible and said, God told Moses to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. That, that's been the story. 
And yet, we, we too have been claimed by this kind of unconscious evangelical understanding. And you hear echoes of it in the preaching that comes from black pulpits as well that tends to privilege this Constantinian privatistic understanding of the faith that leaves the empire to its own devices while we deal with the island of the soul. It is a way of supporting the status quo. Whenever you diminish the importance of bodies, oppressed people are always at a disadvantage. When our bodies are not in the conversation, when our stories are not in the conversation. And so, when it comes to the warehousing of brown and black bodies, they are both out of sight and out of mind. But not only that, when it comes to dealing with this issue, we are dealing with the issue of stigma. That's why this really is the new and improved Jim Crow. Because it's one thing to stand up for Rosa Parks whom Martin Luther King Jr. called one of the most respected people in the Negro community. It is quite another to fight for the basic human dignity of persons whose individual behavior may well be deplorable and who bear some culpability for their condition. Indeed, this is part of the conundrum posed by, a racial, by the racial bias in the criminal justice system. In other words, in a world where ordinary black people must still navigate every day the racial politics of respectability, bearing the burden of being, in the words of that old folk saying in black culture, you may not be aware of it, but let me, let me tell you, in, in, in uh, black culture, particularly black people of a certain generation, particularly black people of a certain generation in the South, the, the question is, what are you doing? You need to be a credit to the race. Privileged people don't have to worry about being a credit to the race. I wonder if Donald Trump is a credit to his race. <laughs> so there, there, there's the politics of respectability. And there's this sense sometimes among black church people that the young black people who find themselves tracking through America's criminal justice system have in some way not kept their side of the deal. If many, are, if many outside of the African-American community view these young black men who make their way in the courtrooms of every major American city every single day with fear and contempt, many within their own families, if we tell the truth, harbor feelings of disappointment, anger, and, amb and ambivalence. In other words, they are the ultimate outsiders stigmatized as both black and criminal. Two words that have long been interchangeable in the Western moral imagination. And so the historical interchangeability of the two is ironically and tragically embodied that, that in the fact that even upon release from prison, many of the same discriminations suffered upon black people during segregation are the lifelong lot of convicted felons, including discrimination in employment, housing, and voting. No matter how long ago the crime occurred, or in some way, in some, in some instances, an accusation, not a conviction. No matter what heroic efforts may have been put forth to achieve personal redemption, 
They are reminded each time that they are presented with an application for employment or other paths of inclusion into the marketplace of the black mark that hangs over their lives. This is eternal social damnation. But no group is more stigmatized than those persons on death row. After years of steady decline and presumptive death by many criminologists, the death penalty reemerged as part of the conservative backlash in the years following Dr. King's death. In a real sense, the death penalty is the final fail-safe for white supremacy. The data shows that what matters more than anything is the race of the victim. And if the victim is white and the presumed perpetrator is African-American, the symbolic power of condemning that cardinal trespass is every bit as important as ensuring that the actual African-American who committed the offense is executed. And that that is still the case decades after the era of lynching became exceedingly clear to me a few years ago during my public advocacy for death row inmate Troy Davis. When I met Troy Davis and became involved in this case, he was accused of the death of a police officer convicted in 1991. And in 2008, we held several rallies for him at the Ebenezer Baptist Church. We stood up for him in a trial that provided no physical evidence in support of Davis's conviction, no murder weapon, DNA evidence or surveillance tapes were ever produced. And in a trial based largely on, largely on witness testimony, seven of the nine witnesses supporting the prosecution's case recanted or materially changed their testimony. On three separate occasions, Davis's execution was stayed within minutes of his death. And then finally, I stood in the prison yard after sitting within, with him in his cell two days earlier, praying with him and hearing his heart. I stood with others in a prison yard on September 21st, 2011, as Troy Davis was stretched out and strapped to a gurney bearing an eerie resemblance to the crucifix and executed in my name as a citizen of the state of Georgia by lethal injection. And in the years that I have continued to fight for Davis and others like him for the soul of a nation scarred by deep contradictions in the criminal justice system and for the lives of young black men and women tragically endangered and murdered by the stigma of blackness as criminality, I've often reminded myself that I preach each week in memory of a death row inmate convicted on trumped up charges at the behest of religious authorities and executed by the state without the benefit of due process. The cross, the Roman Empire's method of execution reserved for subversives is a symbol of stigma and shame, and yet the early followers of Jesus embraced the scandal of the cross, calling it the power of God. And so this is the work that we're called to do. Jackie tells me I've got about one more minute. So let me say quickly that my church is involved and engaged in this work, and that we invite others to join us, Ebenezer and Auburn Seminary, 
and the temple are largely a, the largest and oldest Jewish congregation in Atlanta and several other partners. We're convening a national conference this summer, June 17th through June 19th on building a mass movement, an interfaith movement to end mass incarceration. Last year, my church hosted an expungement event in which we expunged the criminal arrest records of people who've never been convicted of anything. They've simply been arrested. In some instances, they've actually been acquitted, but employers have access to their records. And so they can't get a job, can't get an apartment simply because they've been arrested. They told me when, in ninth grade civics that if you were found innocent, you walked out and everything was fine. And so we were expunging these records and the stories were quite remarkable. I'll just share one with you. I, a few weeks after we had the expungement clinic, I was in the barbershop sitting in the chair, believe it or not. And yeah, true story. And while I was there, this man walked up to me and he said, Reverend, that was a great event at your church, that expungement event. I said, thank you very much. He said, no, you don't understand. He was well-dressed, looked like he was in his mid-50s. He said, you expunged my record. And I realized in that moment the degree to which I, too, have been infected by the politics of respectability. He didn't look the part. He said, you expunged my record. And I said, wonderful, glad to hear that. He said, you don't understand, my life is already better. I've been able to get the best job I've been able to get in 20 years. My income has gone up, I've got a great job. I feel like I've got a new start. I said, that's a wonderful story, brother. Thank you so much. And I was trying to get out of the chair and get to my next appointment. He said, no, Reverend, there's more. He said, a little while ago, there was a young couple in my family and they had a baby and they weren't able to take care of the baby. And that child was about to go into foster care. And you know that foster care system in many instances is a pipeline to the prison industrial complex. He said, a while ago, when I, when I had a record, there's no way DFACS would have taken a look at me, but because the church cleared my record, I was able to adopt a member of my own family. Two generations changed in significant ways even as we raise this large issue. And so finally, this is the work that we are called to do. It is in a real sense a way of addressing the ongoing sin and problem of mass incarceration. The black body is still viewed as a problem, as Gruna Myrtle said in 1944. Lynched black bodies and segregated black bodies are now stopped, frisked, searched, handcuffed, incarcerated, executed, paroled, probated, released, but never emancipated black bodies. And that's the work that the church is called to address. I think our children and our grandchildren will be asking us 51 years from now, what were you doing? Amen.